Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee, and you, you are welcome for the next 60 minutes, no, 60 seconds, 60 minutes at the Sitret Round Table here on an overcast and breezy late afternoon in London town. All in that next hour, why the Russians have kicked out NATO's top officials in Moscow, why a chunk of the Navy is moving home, and does it make naval sense? Why do Americans kill so many civilians in Afghanistan? Will the government's not-wanted poster get rewards, or is it more dead than alive? And why Trafalgar Day is not a good idea for a new bank holiday? So what is? And why? Why was Andrew hard-pressed? There's more, of course, but first, there's the Navy. Or rather, where is it and where it's going? The question we have is this. What's happening to one of the two most historical naval ports in British history? And the Royal Navy that lives in both. The port is Devonport, where the navies lived for centuries and from whence the navy has guarded the western approaches and in modern times thousands of jobs on the line. The Conservative MP for South West Devon, Gary Streeter. Um, Mr Streeter, I mean, Devonport is important in naval terms, not just historically, isn't it? It, it certainly is, and it's served the Royal Navy extremely well since 1691. And, um, you know, it's something we're, we're all very proud of uh, locally, but also it has a tremendous role to play in the local economy. And uh, we are worried that the announcements this week about future base porting of frigates and submarines, whilst we've got you know, a window of five years when they are staying with us in Devonport, uh, very much part of our local economy and heritage, um, after that the future looks a little bleak. And so we are quite anxious at the moment. I mean, the Trafalgar-class submarines going off to Faslane. That seems to make some sort of sense. Gone by when? 2017 at the moment, if all things hold together. Yes, they're now talking about five years or so from now that the submarines are going to Faslane. I, you know, I, I agree that there is some strategic sense to it. I have a, a small concern about the fact that uh, this Scotland does, does currently have a Scottish national government which wants independence and, of course, is against the nuclear deterrent. So there's an issue there that might come to life at some stage in the future. But I hope not. But um, we, we will be very, very sad to see those submarines go. What about the frigates? I know about the FSC, the Future Service Combatant, but um, the frigates that you've got there at the moment, they're, they're, they're going to be cut back, aren't they? They're going to Portsmouth. Well, we're not quite clear about this. The Type 22s are staying, uh, and that's good. There are four of those, and there's quite a lot of crew there who are very much part of the local family. But, of course, they phase out anyway. Their natural life comes to an end in about five or six years. Uh, the Type 23s are staying for the time being and at least five years, but we don't know whether they will go to Portsmouth after that. That decision has not yet been made. But Devonport is going to keep its amphibious contacts, I mean, Ocean, Bulwark, Albion, um, and, but basically that's where the, uh, the Royal Marines are going to be. Yes, and we're very proud of our Royal Marines locally and, and pleased that uh, Devonport will remain the centre of excellence and the centre for the amphibious fleet. Of course, it's not a large amphibious fleet. It's nothing like the same size as, as, as the frigates and submarines as we currently enjoy. Um, but we're, we're thrilled to have them. I think our main worry is, my, my worry is, in seven years' time, which is not much in terms of uh, defence planning, in seven years' time, how many vessels will be tied up alongside Devonport? And it, it may be that it's not a great number at all. Well, I mean, the ones that will be tied up will be going into refit because that's one thing that Devonport is getting, and that is the refit uh, facility. That's right, and, and that's, I think, very encouraging, and I think the Devonport Dockyard facility has a, a tremendously strong future, uh, well run by Babcock now, of course, and when the aircraft carriers are being partly built uh, by Babcock in Rosyth, a lot of work will come from Rosyth to Devonport, 
So I think the docker's got a positive future. It's the, it's the naval base alongside it that is causing us some anxiety. Do you know, I was, I was listening to your debate, and it was your debate. You started the debate this week, didn't you? It was, yeah. Yeah. I was listening to that in the House, and the thing that struck me was that was the, the fact that nobody knew what was going on, really. Uh, mm. The government hadn't said anything for, was it 22 months? Yeah. Um, and yet here we have, 24 hours later, an announcement. Uh, it, it did surprise me slightly that the minister, who's a very good and decent man, was saying to me, I can't make any announcements today. We won't be able to make any announcements for six months, probably, maybe till the end of the year. And then the very next day, comes to Plymouth and makes an announcement. Now, of course, he hasn't announced everything. We don't know the fate of Type 23s. Um, but he's announced plenty. And um, it, it was a surprise. He did uh, speak to me after the debate and say, you know, he said, I, I, I will be saying a few things tomorrow, but I was quite surprised at the extent of it all. Tell me about the politics. I mean, I mean I'm not being cynical, but if I were worried about um, my government standing in, let's say, Scotland, and let's say around Fas Lane, etc., I might shift some submarines up there and give them a bit more work. Well, I mean, I'm afraid there is always politics involved in any decision a government makes, and, and they should be skillful and think about the political ramifications of decisions. But, uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, all I can tell you is that in Portsmouth they're celebrating, and in Faslane they're celebrating, uh, and in Devonport we're not. So I think we have, I'm afraid, got the wooden spoon on this occasion. Yeah, uh, I, t- I tell you one thing, Mr. Treater, I seem to remember, as uh, somebody who served in Chatham, that the yeah. then MP for your area, I think uh, Plymouth Devonport then, who happened to be the naval minister, closed down Chatham to keep Devonport open. So you haven't had a bad run. Well, as I say, pol- there are politics involved in all these decisions. Um, and, you know, it's been a centre of excellence. We're, we're sorry about what happened to Chatham all those years ago, of course, and a lot Thank of people you. who used to work in Chatham now work in Devonport yeah. or are based in Devonport. Um, but we don't want that to happen to us, and we'll be fighting very hard in the future. Gary Streeter, thank you very much indeed. Well, in the studio, the Naval Historian and Director of the Centre for Defence and Security Studies at the University of Salford, Professor Eric Grove. That's the right title, isn't it, Eric? It's the longest title I'm in sorry, academic yes, history, I know, history. Well, I know that. Well, <laughs> um, it, it has a good acronym, though. Yes, Swiss. yes. yes. Okay. It does make sense, doesn't it, to move the nuclear power, uh, power boats to one port? Well, yes, up to a point, but of course the port, as, 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 as Mr. Street has said, it's a port whose long-term future must be in doubt. I mean, uh, the, it, w- one could uh, conceive of a Scottish nationalist landslide uh, in the next election, if the Conservatives are going to do as well as people say. They're but, not going to break away. Well, they don't. They have a, stro- they ha- they have a very strong policy line on this, on this issue. Now, obviously, the jobs issue is very, very important, and I think it's interesting that... Which is another reason they won't break away. That's why the announcement about the submarines was made, because this is very important to the Labour Party standing in, standing in Scotland, as is the carrier programme. The politics of this are absolutely predominant in policy making, I would say. Uh, and uh, clearly, I think this has a lot to do with the Labour Party and its worries about, about Scotland. Um, I would say there is, in, in the long term, although it is very difficult operating fully loaded ballistic missile firing submarines in and out of Devonport, I've always felt that the, perhaps the longest term, the long term home of the, of, the, of the nuclear submarines could well be Devonport in the, 
in the 2020s and 2030s. Yeah, I can just imagine them in Devonport, can't you? And they're saying, we're having war here. Well, they, do re- no, we well they, got the refit, they got the submarine, the nuclear submarine refit yes. thing. Yes. And because I remember I was consultant for Plymouth City Council to try and um, persuade the Navy that they ought to put nuclear submarine refitting in Devonport. So I have a, quite a strong commitment to Devonport yes. in a sense. But yes, I mean... It, in the shortest of short terms, Scotland is important, but Scotland might change. Listen, um, I, mean, I was going to bring him in later, but I've got to bring him in now, because listening with this is the Chief Foreign Correspondent of uh, Global Radio News, Christopher Walken, from the London think tank Chatham House, Dr Claire Spencer. Um, Chris, this whole stink of politics, <laughs> it, I mean, it, it, you know, it's probably not there, but it's an instinct now, isn't it? Somebody who watches public reactions, public opinions... No, we always think, what are the politics behind this? Yeah, why shouldn't it be there? It always has been there. I don't think there's any great change in that. Um, and don't forget, the Labour Party is fairly desperate now. We've got elections here at the beginning of June that could spell the death knell for Gordon Brown if they do badly in the local hang elections. On, hang on. Election, the local elections. Could... And the European elections are yeah. coming at the same day. And there's going to be, it's an enormous referendum. Normally, the European elections would pass with an enormous yawn and let's get on with the cricket. But this one, no. It's going not to the be scores, is it? Very, <laughs> but not with the state of the parties either. So yeah. anything's got to, you sort of stink of politics, but shouldn't politics be playing a, a part in this to an extent? Aren't jobs important, futures of towns and, and such like? Good point. Uh, Claire Spencer, sitting in that think tank of yours, everything, everything that you look at is about politics, isn't it, eventually? Well, certainly, if you're looking, I mean, it affects domestic politics first and foremost, but we deal with foreign policy. With a, an election in the air, inevitably, people are positioning themselves um, for the best place option. So, therefore, we're withdrawing from Iraq. Uh, we're not increasing force levels in Afghanistan dramatically because these are known to be relatively unpopular issues. I mean, the case for Afghanistan is up in the air, as we'll probably Yeah, but they're right up in the air about the Gurkhas as well, aren't they? We'll come to that Well, I mean, on. that was a very, very own goal. I mean, you can feel Joanna Lumley for any cause, and uh, the country's going to be behind her. Yes, and the Gurkhas. And certainly the Gurkhas. I Thank have you. to say, one's gut instinct is very much in that slogan, if you can die for your country, you can live in it. And I think this is what's appealed to people. When you hear a former Chancellor of the Exchequer, a Tory one, Nigel Lawson, wheeled on at lunchtime today, saying there's only one alternative, complete pull-out from Afghanistan. Otherwise, the books won't balance. I mean, this is Mm. sheer politics, as Mm. as Claire said. This is today very, you know... Nigel Lawson, he knew what he was talking about, did he? Uh, well, he had great fun with the books when he was in charge, didn't he? Mm. But he's been on a dart since then. And remember, naval base policy is very fluid. I mean, it, 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 if that's the right word to use. How can you? Uh, you haven't got many. Well, well yes, but, 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 remember, but remember there was a naval base review recently and everybody said Portsmouth was going to close. I mean, you know, they come... We should do like the French and set them up in the Middle East instead. Yes. And aren't they starting that famous gun race again after ten years? The gun race? At the, uh, oh, yes, at the yes, tattoo. Yes, well, that's all part of it. It's bound to be tied up. Yes, we won that at Chatham once. Only once. I remember some bloke lost four fingers doing it. That was saved and waving at me anyway. Now, <laughs> I want to talk about bank holidays because we just had, in the UK, the first... Uh, we just had a bank holiday, um, which means we had Monday and Tuesday off. Um, Yet another bank holiday, say some. Well, the government is talking of having even more bank holidays. I think we have six official ones here. Scotland, they, it, they have two more, so that's eight. Um, 
We want another one in the autumn. What should it be called if we had it and why? Well, on his mobile, I think, from Gibraltar, BFS's man on the rock, Mario Chrysostomo. Uh, Mario, um, Jib is a perfect place where you have to think before you utter. It wouldn't be, would it, a good idea to have rock day? Possibly not rock date, Christopher, but there's always uh, you know there's a selection of, of dates that are that are significant in the Gibraltar calendar that, that might lend themselves. Uh, and um, I, I don't think there's anybody on the rock. Hello. Sorry, Christopher. Yes, I was going to say I don't think there's anybody on the rock that would uh, argue against another bank holiday. Yeah, I mean, you, you what would you call it? Well. well Again, there are days like the um, uh, 4th of August, marking the day when in 1704 Governor de Salinas surrendered Gibraltar to the, uh, the Anglo-Dutch force. There's uh, the Royal Gibraltar Regiment, of course, who celebrated their 70th anniversary just a couple of weeks ago. So that could be sometime in um, what, late April. But that doesn't get us over that, that autumnal bank holiday that you're uh, looking for. How about uh, commemorating the victory at Trafalgar towards the end of Oh, October? the French will love it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's oh, and the yeah. Spanish. Exactly, you know, our, our, um, our one-time traditional enemies turned NATO allies. So, uh, yeah, that wouldn't best please them. Armed Forces Day, of course, 27th of June. Um, yeah, it's not a bank holiday, is it, yet? It's not, and it's not in Gibraltar. Having said that, of course, uh, in many parts of the Commonwealth and in our overseas territory, they celebrate the Queen's official birthday in June, even though it moves around the month. We don't celebrate that in the UK. Right, OK. Is that, so what, what, what are you going for as a bank holiday? I think I'd go with June, you know, I'd go for the Queen's birthday because it, it, it tends to be um, more widely accepted. So, Monarch Day. OK, yeah. Mario, thanks very much indeed. That's from Gibraltar. We've got, we've, got, um, we've got the Queen's birthday as a bank holiday. I don't see anything wrong with Trafalgar Day. After all, the, the, mm. the, the French have a Garde Lostelet, etc. I mean, the French are, are not backwards in coming forward in commemorating their own victories. I tell you what, I always thought was the funniest thing when the, when the, when the French defence... When we had to, this has nothing to do with the programme, but I'll tell you, um, 2005 or 2005, when we had the the great Nelson thing, right? And uh, there was a conversation that was being told about in in the MOD, and they said, uh, "Well, we're giving the French defence minister a lunch." So I said, "Where?" And they said, "Well, in the victory." And I thought, right. I mean, I wonder how he feels about that. But the next <laughs> bit came that he was actually coming by train. I mean, where would he come into in London? <laughs> Waterloo. <laughs> yes, that wasn't going down well. Let's talk about another tricky situation, shall we? Let's talk about Afghanistan and Pakistan, or this terrible expression, AFPAC, which comes out now. Both the presidents, President Hamid Karzai of Afghanistan and President of Pakistan, uh, Asif Ali Sadari, in Washington this week, meeting President Obama. Um... um Chris, good news that they're both there? Good news, but I think it's probably if we were a fly on the wall when Mr Obama was not facing them in the Rose Garden or something like that, they're probably the two leaders in the world with whom he had to, has to deal, with whom he has the least regard. And that terrible phrase that was used this week by, I think, his national security advisor, a very high American, close to him anyway, that Mr Karzai seems to have plateaued as plateaued. a leader. <laughs> I thought plateau sounds like a sort of territorial form of waterboarding. It didn't sound... Uh, 
terribly happy Love state it. to be in. Yeah. And also, this is the week when Karzai is picked as a running mate, one of the most wildest warlords in Afghanistan, who's about... He's a CIA's man. Uh, well, he, he may yeah. be, but yeah. he's not yeah. terribly uh, uh, likely to bring me. the home... <laughs> yeah. Did you believe him? Of course I Was did. your head underwater at the time? <laughs> <laughs> now, listen, it, there is a, seri- a very serious and very sad part of this, and that the Americans, um, clear, giving um, the Afghans uh, a, a, a bit of stick, and especially President Karzai. The same week that the Americans kill a load of civilians, and President Karzai said, you're still doing it. You know, how can you give me a dressing down when you're mm. doing that sort of thing? How is it that Americans manage to carry on killing civilians? Well, I'm afraid where you're operating in the kind of terrain they're in with the kind of targets they're after, inevitably, and we found this in Iraq, you can almost say it was ever thus, there are going to be civilian casualties. You know, you can identify... Collateral damage, as we said in Well, it's, there's ghastly phrases for this, but, you know, you could be in a village looking to target one house, and, of course, the occupants of the next house, not to mention the next several houses, go up in mm. smoke at the same time. Now, I think there is what's interesting, and there seems to be a bit of division of opinion, certainly from the new security circles in Washington, as to the wisdom of these kind of tactics, precisely because, you know, the air is full of cause and effect, and the idea that... It's not hearts and mind stuff, is it? Not at all. It's, you know, are you going to generate more Taliban? Because let's reel back five years or even three years. The so-called mm-hmm. Taliban weren't there. They are made up of a motley crew of uh, tribal area uh, disenchanted people. I mean, I've even heard this famous AFPAC it is now being turned around to pack af because the most serious part of all this is yeah. is rising in pakistan there are divisions uh being created between the sunni and shia mm. communities in the swat areas this is very mm. very dangerous terrain eric the uh, people in washington are starting to say very quietly i think that the drone um the, the drone tactic especially as it goes crossing into Pakistan from Afghanistan, that's going to be held back on because we, we have difficulty in targeting. There is a base for the drones in Pakistan, of course. It was reported some months ago. Um, a secret one, which the diary doesn't own up to. Um, the, um, I think there's a very fine balance here. It's pretty clear that the drone offensive, if you want to call it that, has been very successful in knocking out some pretty key Taliban leaders. At a price, though, as Claire so rightly mm. says. Mm. And you've got this to... This was fi- 100, I mean, 120 this Yes, week. you've yeah. got to find the... You know, now, now, there is, I think, some effect in knocking out other leaders, but if it's going to create a lot more support, then clearly you get to a point of diminishing mm. returns. Um, uh, the, it's interesting, actually. I've just been to an air power conference, and the airmen were getting very... Um, uh, angry that in fact only 30% apparently of the collateral damage if you like is actually air delivered that mm-hmm. most of the people are actually killed by mortars and artillery and this kind of thing. Oh, hang on, they were getting upset about this? this yes, because because they feel that they're being picked on, that it's air power oh, air oh, power causes collateral more. No, air power oh, causes Sorry, air, no. because there is a lot of concern I mean, people, people yeah. are very much tr- people are trying very hard to, to operate with a minimum collateral damage and that's true and a lot of effort well, Say they are. No, I think they are. I think I. I, I how really do think they, they make are. a mistake? As Chris said, how do they make a mistake like this week? Because 120 people. Yeah, but because how do nobody make that mistake. Is the is it human failure? Is there machinery or I or do they just don't care? 
targeting is as exact as it can be, but sometimes errors errors are made. I mean, yeah, it, somebody uh, gets into the tar- into the target. Yeah, well, the they, they, well no, quite clearly, yeah. quite so clearly, so moves into, into the house. Into, into yeah. the house. Exactly. Do you remember the bomb shelter in Baghdad? Yeah, I mean, it was it was unbelievable. Mm. I mean, it was a bomb shelter, yeah. and it was marked such on their maps. Can I just yeah. um, try another one? I mean, one of the um, things about uh, um, with the um, a Pakistan uh, president going to Washington, and Washington has been saying recently that they're pretty hacked off for the fact that the Pakistanis don't go after Taliban. Mm. And of course, suddenly, Claire, mm. the Pakistan army is in the Sawat Valley. Mm. Uh, it's a coincidence or what? Well, I think there, there is a sense there is no military solution, and there's also fears that the military themselves have been infiltrated to a much higher degree. Mm-hmm than people supposed before. So I'm afraid I, I don't quite get the logic of this, apart from at least being on the ground to engage in a bit of damage limitation because the, the high military command has never been convinced by an all-out military solution to this, and I think they're being proved right. I got, the, I got the impression, I could be wrong, that in fact the Taliban were, in the eyes of the Pakistanis, it could just be an excuse, reneging on their agreement, that they mm. were in fact expanding further than they said they would, and they weren't disarming the way they promised, well, I and tell therefore, you, the, you know, the, hence well, the offensive. I, I get the impression the US particularly got worried when it saw this figure that the Taliban were about 60 kilometres from the nuclear arsenal. Yeah. Exactly. I think that's got them more worried than anything. But, yeah, but, I mean, uh, but the, the point Eric's making there about um, that the Taliban may have reneged on their agreement, hmm. um, that agreement was pulled together by the cleric, uh, Sophie Mohammed, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, it was. And what did the Pakistanis do last night? They managed to um, attack the one place where, uh, Kafi- what's his name, Kafaya Atullah? Kafaya Atullah, who is the son of Sufi Mohammed, the guy that got the agreement Ooh. together, and they killed him. Mm. And they've created, I think, in the last three weeks, 40,000 refugees. Uh, A completely new problem. A bit more than that, but they can always bring them back. Listen, uh, listening to this, I hope, is the Professor of Politics at the University of Southern Utah, Michael Stathis. Michael, there's all this this great discussion about Afghanistan and Pakistan, the so-called AFPAC thing. Does that, you know, cut anything in 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 the wider United States? Anybody take any notice? Oh, a great deal of notice. Um, now, I don't want to sound too cynical, but when they create an acronym for it, uh, AFPAC, uh, of course, it's headline news. Um, it's, uh, it's very big and it's, it's very worrisome, especially when we count the, what, 60 to 100 uh, strategic nuclear weapons in, uh, in Pakistan. Yeah. This, the, the view, it seems to me, in the State Department, in the Pentagon, and perhaps from some of the CIA officials I've heard quoted, is that uh, President Karzai will almost certainly win again in August, the presidential election. He'll be back. So as much as they don't want to, they've really got to back him because he's, he's their man. Well, that's true. And, you know, the uh, overwhelming importance of the election and the whole thing, I think, was accentuated uh, uh, yesterday with the visit of uh, Karzai and Zadari to uh, to the United States. But, uh, you know, despite the handshakes and the hugging and everything that was going on that uh, looked good, uh, neither of these two leaders seemed to over, overwhelm anyone with a sense of confidence, uh, and worse so with, uh, you know, the, the uh, deteriorating circumstances there. What about... Um what about Pakistan itself? I mean, it seems to have taken a, a long time for the United States to work out that Pakistan is the key 
to Afghanistan, resolving Afghanistan. Is that simply because, um, you know, Obama and his people have got to settle in or what? I think part of it uh, is, is that. Uh, the other part of it, I think from the very beginning, was more uh, wishful thinking that uh, Pakistan would not be a problem, uh, that somehow uh, the forces that, uh, that reigned there, uh, however defined, uh, would uh, take care of the local problem. But uh, increasingly, uh, over the last few months, uh, that, uh, uh, that's deteriorating. And uh, the confidence in the, uh, the government in, in Pakistan is uh, coming undone very quickly as well. It's the, but the alternative is not very good. What is the alternative? Well, and uh, this is where uh, the uh, editorials are starting to pop up in newspapers about regime change, but uh, to whom and and by what process? Uh, because it clearly could be uh, much worse in Pakistan, uh, believe it or not. Uh, the army seems to be, uh, of course, the alternative, but uh, uh, certainly Obama uh, is uncomfortable with that. And there's no guarantee which way the army would lean uh, if it were in total control. Yeah, I mean, there isn't a Musharraf uh, fan club sort no. of stuff. Up, is there? Yeah. Tell me, is what, and that's not good either. So. <laughs> it's just, just one final thing, um, Michael, on this. Um, it was interesting that um, Vice President Biden apparently said to um, President Karzai, uh, you know, you used to be, have a weekly talk with um, President Bush. It's not going to be like that anymore. Maybe, maybe a couple of times a year. Um, and that sort of goes along with the uh, National Security um, Agency's idea that uh, Karzai has plateaued out, as the expression. Mm -hmm. But he's going to win in August, everybody says. So that's not a very, very, very good tactic, is it? Well, the fact that he will have talks, uh, scarce as they may be, with Biden, I think is telling. Uh, he probably will not be having regular talks with uh, with, with Obama, and that uh, that really does uh, say something. His his stock has uh, fallen a great deal, and I think there is a a, a reality. Uh, I think Biden uh, is very well aware of this. Obama is well aware of this. That uh, reelected or not, uh, uh, the government in Kabul. Uh, essentially only rules in Kabul and not much else. Uh, there, are, there have to be other answers. Um, Michael, before you go, uh, the United States has, um, has more bank holidays, well, not public holidays, and you can shake a stick at. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a discussion going on here. Uh, if you had a bank holiday, a new holiday, um, what would it be? It, it's funny that you mentioned that the other day, because when I teach American national government, I have argued for years that we should have a, a holiday on September 3rd. Uh, it is more important than the 4th of July, if you know the history, especially 1783. Now, uh, choosing that date uh, is a little unkind uh, t today, so... Um, Maybe August 14th and the birth of the Atlantic Charter would would be more politic. As long as it lasts. <laughs> as long as it lasts, yes. Is there, can you put a date on the special relationship? Well, I think it is August 14th. Um, I That's what I meant, as long as it lasts. <laughs> as long as it lasts. But I, I think it's in decent shape, uh, shape right now. Uh, when I come to visit London, I'll make it stronger. Okay, Michael Stathis, <laughs> we'll take you up on that. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Well, um, I suppose we ought to go from Pakistan, Afghanistan to that other um, area, that other theatre. Uh, 
Christopher Walker. Yeah, the killing goes on, doesn't it? I mean, just because the British are pulled out, then the headlines from the British press, you know, Iraq, Shumrak, you know, it wasn't a matter as long as you love your mother. Yeah, but I think today we had the amazing thing, or yesterday rather, really good financial headlines from Iraq. Can you imagine it? And the killing may be going on, but the oil majors, all seven of them, have decided to swallow their uh, uh, sort of caution to take the risk, and they're all going in there. And they're going to start bidding in June, and they've got to start work by November. Iraq has the third biggest oil reserves in the world. People like Shell and BP have said, look, you can't get together and make an oil bill. We're not going to, this is too good to, to worry about. And I think when you know the real oil industry, the reason is there's virtually nowhere else in the world but the Arctic uh, and one or two remote spots that aren't sort of owned by the countries where they can start working for the profit. And these people know how to find oil. Mm. And I think it's going to change the whole Iraqi picture very, you know, pretty quickly. Claire, this is your patch. What do you think? Well, it depends on the political dispensation after the Americans leave. And we're already seeing, I mean, the headlines have talked about the violence in Baghdad, but the violence in Mosul is still continuing. And that's where Americans have actually seen themselves killed in large numbers, five of them killed by a suicide attack last month, um, which is leading concern about the agreement to leave uh, the major cities by the end of June. And I frankly think that the main uh, political parties are shaping up. I mean, we still don't know what Muqtada al-Sajj and company are planning to do, but they are shaping up for the after-American era. And, of course, they're in the business of sending each other signals. Now, while the economic side of this is, as I agree, good news if oil is going to flow, we may well see a focus on who controls these assets, because if they haven't got an oil law and it's not controlled by central government from Baghdad, who is actually going to be controlling it since most of it's in Basra? How is it that the Iraqi government, interim government before that, has not been able to pull through a law which says this is the system of controlling oil? Well, every time we've had conferences at Chatham House on this, we've been deluged by about sort of 55 PowerPoint presentations on different articles of the fundamental constitution. And the major row, although there's subsidiary rows, is obviously between the Kurdish areas and what nature of federation will actually emerge. And since there's no consensus on how this is going to be shared between the Kurds and the Arab Iraqis, and of course within the Arab Iraqi side you have not just the Shias and Sunnis, you have variations on the Shia theme and different Sunnis, um, this is the nature of the debate. So it's who gets what, who can exploit what, uh, what share goes centrally. And this is, this is the issue, that if there is no strong central government, and I'm afraid uh, Maliki's Shia coalition is clearly in favour of uh, his particular group of Shias, rather than ruling it at a, at a national level on behalf of everyone, I think this, this issue, I'm afraid, will more than likely become the, the cause of a civil war. Uh, or a reckoning after the Americans leave. And I, as I say, I think they're shaping up for it. It's a year to go. They've got time to position themselves for the aftermath. Eric, a very quick sort of thought on this. Um, in some ways, as far as the British government's concerned, I mean, the British have done their job there, mm-hmm. but they're actually very, very glad to be out Absolutely right. I mean, it, it, the military is particularly exactly, exactly. I mean, it's it become an increasing incubus, in fact, in many ways. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 if we are going to concentrate on, Af- on Afghanistan, you know, it's the, it was the only th- only thing that can be done. Iraq is a pretty ungovernable country. I mean, I, I I always took the view that in fact the only way only way you could 
you could run it was the way Saddam Hussein ran it actually <laughs> and have a pretty nasty regime. Listen, this is not program policy. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but but it's an enlightened. But Iraq, but Iraq, but Iraq. Well, perhaps, but Iraq. You know, it, 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 it is as clear. So somebody said, brilliant. You know, you've got all these different. Did the groups. trains run on time? Uh, what trains? Very few trains. There was a train actually. No, it's, no, it's back actually. The bus no, back down. Yeah. Train yeah. Right, listen, I'm back as well. Uh, we're just going to return very quickly to our bank holiday question. The question is this. If we have another bank holiday in the UK, what really is it going to be and why? Let's go over to Belize and talk to BFBS's managing editor there, Chris Pearson. Chris, um, have you got an idea for a bank holiday? Well, I've got a few suggestions, Christopher, to be honest. I we'll mean, have three, then. At, uh, obviously, the, <laughs> the various saints days, but I think that's going to get really difficult to administer. But certainly from an English perspective, we, you know, we, we, we don't really play up St. George very much at all. And here in Belize, St. George uh, has a big um, re- reckoning, basically. St. George's Why? Key, just off of the coast of Belize. And it's, it's, but there was a famous battle of St. George's Key uh, in the days of... Uh, pirate ships and things and, and it's, it's a big day in Belize um, although he's not a patron saint of the country or anything like that um, so it, it's represented here and it is a holiday it's uh, a public holiday it's a public holiday for Belizeans so they, they tend to uh, chill out and take it easy by an excuse to be honest in Belize but um, yeah. the, the one I'd probably plump for though to avoid the confusion over same stage would, would probably be um, maybe 31st October um, Go on. To, to, to mark the Battle of Britain Battle of Britain Day uh, mm-hmm. in 1940 did we not used to have a Battle of Britain Day Eric, he will tell us his history. Yes, there is. Battle. There was one. Yes, uh, there are, there is a particular battle of Battle Britain. It's in September actually, and and it's the it's the it's uh, w- sort of when the big victory. So Valeria Flag Day or something is it? Yes, I mean that's that's not bad, but I still rather have Trafalgar Day. Chris, um, tell me, um, you pick one, and, and we'll, we'll tell the government. Hmm. Okay, I'm going I'm going to go for the Battle of Britain Day for me definitely. Okay. Many thanks indeed. That's uh, Chris Pearson, the BFBS's managing editor in Belize. Nearly halfway through the programme, remember if you'll listen on BFBS Alternative Service, you can also get SITREP by going to, wait for it, bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. And we're also, also available as a podcast again. So go to bfbs.com forward slash SITREP and you get all the details how to do it. Now quiz time. Last week, we asked a simple question. Which surface is called the Andrew and why? Well, the answer is the Royal Navy, but why? Eric, um, the Andrew Miller? Yes, that's right. Tell this us what he, who he was. Press, he was a press gang uh, person, he was, yes. He, he was, was the press recruit, gang. Yes. yes, he was the captain of the press gang, and it was reckoned in the days of the press gang uh, that he had pressed so many men into the Navy's service that he owned the Navy. Yes, that's and right. And so the that's Navy the became called... Press ganging go out. Press ganging stopped when the war stopped in 1815 uh, because it was only a wartime a wartime measure, and it wasn't brought. But it, it because it sort of fell out of favour generally. Uh, it wasn't brought back in the 18 in the 18 in the 1850s. But you could say it was started. Do again. people still call it the Andrew? Uh, to some extent. To some. We've got extent. a naval officer sitting out there with <laughs> leaning on one side because he got so many medals. Only been in a moment. Um, <laughs> we're going to ask him. Um, anyway, this week's question is another one for the senior service mm-hmm. the naval phrase for yes or yes sir is what i i isn't it i i sir why why i i answers on a meme email please to sitrep at bfbs.com why does the navy say i i uh we're halfway through no we're running late we're more than halfway through this week's sitrep roundtable i'm christopher lee with me in the studio a naval historian director of the center for defense and security studies at the university of salford professor eric Grave. 
Eric, we'll have to shorten that somewhere. Chief Foreign Correspondent of Global Radio News, Christopher Walker, and from the London think tank, Chatham House, Dr Claire Spencer. Um, Claire, mm. it was this week, was it, uh, Israel's Independence Day? It I mean, normally indeed. you get the big foreign policy announcement or big... And we got a new government, the, the, the government of uh, uh, Mr Netanyahu. Nothing. Sort of thought you said something about Palestine. Well, there's a big dilemma at the heart of this that nobody seems to be spelling out in words of one syllable in order to put this coalition together with the Labour Party, led by Barak, um, former and now current defence minister, and uh, Lieberman, who attracts the most headlines, who's now the foreign... Uh, Avigdor Lieberman, the foreign minister... Who, He's quite a character, isn't he? He is quite a character, and he has quite a long track record of citable quotes about what he'd like to do with the Palestinians. In order to put this coalition together, as far as I can see, this is not public, but it seems to, from the deduction, he's had to promise a two-state solution to the Labour Party and promise the opposite, in other but words, he's not anything saying but. So. No, and obviously they're going to have to hammer this out between He's going to America, isn't he? He's going to see uh, President Obama. Shimon Peres is there at the moment, so yeah. he's softening up, if you like, the... But uh, when does Netanyahu The go? American side. He's going sometime, I've forgotten the exact date, it's within... Two weeks. It's within 18th, two weeks. Isn't it? it's yeah. I think it's the 18th, 18th, so that's yeah. 10 days' time. Yeah. So, um, we'll probably hear something then. Well, the idea, in the meantime, of course, the EU has um, got itself steamed up, and I think the Israelis have quite cleverly um, acted on this, because there's elements and within the EU who are quite happy to, to give uh, the Israelis some time, but um, Benita Ferrara-Waldner, who is the External Relations Commissioner, has made it very clear that without a two-state solution, which is official EU policy, the enhanced relationship being negotiated with Israel cannot go ahead. Now, that's not to say things are stopping or they're penalising the Israelis because they've already had enhanced relations up to a point over the last five years. But everybody is waiting in the sidelines for this big announcement to be made, as you, as you say, in Washington, D.C. Tell me, um, very naively ask this, why is it important what Netanyahu says, why what, why what goes on in Israel is important? The rest of the world can get on quite happily without... Uh, terrible thing to say without the Palestinians getting sorted without it being a two-state two system. Well, that's not Mr. Obama's view. His view is hmm. that it's disrupting the whole of the of the world, and until it's solved, is it? yes, I yes, it is because it's the, the thing. it's the recruiting sergeant for every hmm. extreme Muslim Keep Arab group. This. Will you go and try a few? But it's few. been going on long before I've Taliban just come back started. From Doha, and mm. it's the topic of if you're talking about yeah. strategic relations, security in the Middle East. On the one hand, you'll have a working group talking about Iran and how to manage them. But the key issue, because everyone is losing patience, it's obvious what needs to happen. Time is running out as well for a two-state solution. The maps are there. Mm. What's missing is the political process to get from A to B. And the fear on the Israeli side now is that there is no workable um, Palestinian uh, entity between Fatah and Hamas, their talks are continually failing, that will actually ensure something which doesn't become a terrorist state. So that is a genuine uh, Israeli preoccupation. Okay. And on the Palestinian mm. side, they feel they've been sold down the river because this two-state solution that the EU and others, and even Obama has signed up to, is looking less and less viable if nobody reigns in settlement activity by the Israelis on the West Bank. And don't forget, just to finish, Gaza is still closed. Um, humanitarian assistance, which was promised mm -hmm. um, afterwards, is not really getting in there because that hasn't been settled either. I mean, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the tunnels in the south were bombed mm -hmm. again by the Israelis. So this is a tinderbox everyone in the whole region is aware of. Right. 
I want to talk, um, Christopher Walker, I want to talk about Georgia. Ooh. NATO exercise there started yesterday. I couldn't quite figure this out. It was a thousand troops of one form or another from 18 countries. I think it's a marvellous command and control exercise. <laughs> yeah, and for the first four weeks, they're only dealing with computers anyway. They're not letting them out on the streets or, or into the... <laughs> well, uh, people need computers the now, don't they? Yeah, but I mean, they're not going to be sort of visible. They're not going to be tanks running oh, right. about the place. But I think what's most important, on the night, you know, two days ago, we had a so-called attempted coup by one... Do you believe uh, it? Uh, well, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, it's something happened, whether it was a cover-up, or not, there is no doubt that President Saakashvili is in big trouble. There were riots again last night. And I think what's very interesting is that he's been dumped by one of his most strongest former allies. That's the former British ambassador, uh, Donald McLaren, who was there. Well, what's from, he done? Well, from 2004 to 2007, he's written an open letter. And he was a Saakashvili fan, Complete wasn't he? fan. And, in fact, I know him slightly, and I'd say he was a dope about him. Right. Uh, his daughter did marry of Georgia, which affected his judgment to some extent, but he was one of these wave the flag, and he's just written this open letter. It's been in all the Georgian papers. Go on, you've got uh, some of it. Well, I've got, I'm not going to read it all, but in 2004, he said to Saakashvili, most of the country shared not just your vision of liberty, but trusted you to implement its judicial independence, media freedom, accountability, no dark corners. Now, nearly half of them have lost that trust. This is not the simple loss of popularity you predicted at the outset. It is fundamental. Men trust or break more heads, your call. It's not exactly the sort of uh, friendly dancing, this guy. <laughs> Which, Saakashvili or no, McLaren? No, no McLaren. Well, he, uh, he's left the Foreign Office, which means he can speak out. Well, he out. would have done, yeah. Well, he can. You yeah. know, the present ambassador hardly raises a squeak about anything. Well, it's interesting, isn't mm. it? I, mean, I sometimes seem to forget that it's only last August when there was a war there. <laughs> yes. And we were talking about yes. East-West confrontation you know, mm. in the South Ossetia. Well, didn't we nearly have it? I mean, uh, it was looking very, very tricky at, uh, at some point. So uh, why is the diplomacy so good, Eric Grove? Why is it so good that we've decided to hold, hold an 18-nation NATO exercise in Georgia just to prove that we're not going to be kicked around by the Russians? Yes, I mean, I think it's a signal. and As we've heard, it's a low, relatively low-key signal that, you know, don't even think of exploiting these problems by Ooh. perhaps extending your control Ooh. in Georgia. And, in fact, it goes to get... It's the other side of the coin, I think, to the, to the, to the political difficulties the President's got. Ooh. OK. Um, i tell you what I want to do. Uh, I want to talk to something, something quite different at the moment. Um... I don't know if anybody noticed the foreign office. No, the Home Office has has declared the names of some of the people barred from entering the United Kingdom for fostering extremism or hatred. Not sure what the difference is, but extremism or hatred, and they've been published. I think for the first time. Here's Jamie Gordon. Extremists, white supremacists and a US radio host are among the 16 of 22 excluded in the five months to March. They've been named by the Home Office and include a Kashmiri militant group leader, a Russian skinhead and a former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Home Secretary Jackie Smith says that these individuals don't deserve access to the UK. Coming to this country is a privilege and that we won't allow people into this country who are going to propagate the sort of views and more than that, that 
fundamentally go against our values. Six of the 22 have not been named on the grounds that it could reveal the type of information being held about them. Iniet Bunglawala from the Muslim Council of Britain thinks the government's sanctions won't prevent the offending messages getting through. It's a bit of a gimmick anyway, and you have internet delivery, you have satellites, and many of these people are, are beamed into the internet anyway. And to get around this, what some extremist groups have done here in the UK is just arrange it so that there is an internet broadcast and then they're feeding into a, a hall or a library over here. So their views aren't being kept out in any case. Fred Phelps, a Baptist minister, and his daughter Shirley are on the list as well. They've both been barred for their anti-gay views and their protests involve going to funerals of US soldiers claiming they've paid the price for America's tolerance of homosexuality. Jackie Smith says that people are entitled to their views but there are limits. I believe in free speech. I want to defend that. But I don't think free speech should be a licence for people to preach or to promote hatred or to exhort other people actually to carry out criminal acts. The Michael Savage Show contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. In a development yesterday, another on the list, radio talk show host Michael Savage has decided to retaliate. Amongst other things, he's been accused of provoking others to serious criminal acts. In an article posted on his website, he said he did not advocate violence, but traditional values. He's accused the Home Secretary of lunacy and is taking the British government to court. I don't know if I can win. I don't know the laws of England. I have seven lawyers working on this right now. Britain defamed Michael Savage, putting me in a league with mass murderers because of my opinions. To put me in a league with Hamas is defamation. Well, that's Jamie Gordon's report. That wasn't Jamie Gordon, by the way. It was Michael Savage at the end of that. Um... Christopher Walker. It's an interesting point, isn't it? I mean, Jackie Smith, the Home Secretary uh, so far, um, was, was saying she defends free speech. But in the great traditional values, say what you like then. Yeah. That's free speech. But don't say you can't, you can't do it. And the, I think the appalling thing about this list as well is it's got this fatal element of balance in it. You've, you had to have a, you've got a Jewish settler. Oh, you better have an Islamic extremist. You've got an American loud bath. Oh, we better have that. What about that Russian gangster who's actually in prison in Moscow? The chances of him getting on a plane tonight are fairly small, but we've still got to keep him out. And then you've got the, the best of all, the six mystery men and women. You know, everybody's sitting around to see if they can name them. Mm. Somebody said to me, it's probably Jerry Adams, but they don't dare print his name. Yes, well, Jerry <laughs> Adams was the first so-called extremist to be brought into the country by a Conservative government. Uh, Quite right. And he sat in Chelsea with Mr. Whitelaw in 1972. 72, 73. And he had breakfast uh, uh, in a garden that my bedroom now looks out on. Swap me. Swap me. Um, Listen, Claire, on a serious note, these are your people. I mean, a lot of these people are sort of, um, you know, from the Middle East or centre in the Middle East or whatever. (laughs) No, they they come here. You're studying them all the time. Are they that dangerous? No, I agree with the other Christopher that that actually there's a huge whiff of political correctness about this list. I mean, for a start, I don't understand why they have to publish it. You know, a discreet email to each of the individuals saying, don't even think about turning up at Heathrow, you'll be wasting your money, might help. But why? we need to know particularly with the mystery (laughs) and um yes my neck of the woods they do take extra care etc but you do wonder because people with the same names get detained and clearly you know with a bit of intelligence they would have found out they had nothing to do with the other muhammad ali or whatever the name is they're detaining so it doesn't really help pr at all in any way i don't know why they've done this uh christopher walker we're talking about um 
Northern Ireland there very briefly. Uh, first report of the Independent Monitoring Commission published this morning, uh, since the killing of the two soldiers and the policemen. Yes, on March since the, the killing in early March, uh, with the first police of the Ted years and tragedy. What are they saying? What they're saying is, I say it's six, you know, six or one and a half a dozen of the other. The real IRA is a really dangerous institution for a very nasty people. But the lucky thing is there's not many of them. And they're saying, it, virtually they're saying between the lines, there's going to be more violence, there's going to probably be a spectacular, but it's not going to affect the peace process uh, in the bigger, wider mm. round. And I think that's perhaps confirmed by a, a separate report that's appeared certainly in the Daily Telegraph this week and elsewhere that the loyalists are fairly coast to handing in their weapons in the same way that the IRA did. Maybe really? later this summer? Well, yes, because there's a fatal deadline. If they mm. don't hand them in, start by the end of August, finish by December, the amnesty that they were all allowed is going to be The amnesty scrapped. so they wouldn't well, the be convicted or charged with... Well, the amnesty says if there's any forensic evidence on mm. this machine gun that you shot Seamus O'Hagan, we won't use it. OK. Mm. I want to go back to one of these other bank holiday things. Um, Glenn Mansell is on the line from the Falklands. Glenn, I mean, if you had to name a bank holiday, I mean, do you have the same bank holidays in the Falklands as, say, uh, in the United Kingdom? Um, we have some which are the same. Uh, some of them are, are slightly different, uh, particularly pertinent to uh, the Falkland Islands and, and their recent history. Uh, the British forces here, it should be noted that they... they don't actually get the time off. I mean, it's very rare to receive a bank holiday while you're on detachment uh, in the Falkland Islands. So, although we know they're there, we, we actually work through them. Right. Well, I mean, have you got any ideas what you'd like to see, if at all? Well, we've uh, we've spoken to we've spoken to uh, people as they've come through the station uh, earlier today, and we've spoken to uh, some of the staff here as well. Um, servicemen being servicemen, so I don't know how some of these are going to be appropriate or not. Uh, somebody thought it should we should have a, a national hot pants day on Kylie Minogue's birthday. <laughs> Go on, and um, you voted for it, and, I bet. Um, <laughs> and uh, we've also uh, quite a few people actually thinking we should have a UK day to be proud to be uh, British, uh, part of the United Kingdom. Uh, that could either be Midsummer's Day or it could be on St George's Day. Uh, personally, I would like to see the Armed Forces Day that we've already got established being a bank holiday, and I think that would be a fitting tribute to to the boys and girls around the world. And hot pants? You got a lot of got a lot of votes in hot pants day. Ab absolutely, the votes are still coming in now as well. I can understand it. Do let me know, won't you? Can I just okay. make the point that St George's, Glenn, Day, thank St. George's you. Day cannot possibly be United Kingdom Day. It mm. is England. Yeah. It has nothing to do with Scotland, Wales or Ireland. Uh, and um, if you want an Act of Union Day, and it's not too bad, in a way, there is a date, I'm not, I'm not sure what it is, for the, uh, you might know, Chris, the Act of Union 1801. No. Good. But actually, <laughs> which creates the UK. Wait a minute, let's talk about this later on, because I tell you what I want to talk about now is the Naval Air, Air Service. The celebrations marking a century of, of naval aviation, that's the best way to describe it, um, have begun with a fly-past by some of the service's most impressive aircraft over Christopher Walker's house on the Thames. <laughs> um, and really, where it all began, Eastchurch on the Isle of Sheppey. Um, now... With us, uh, Rupert Nickel, who, as Lieutenant Commander uh, Nickel, was in Hermes during the 1982 Falklands. Um, quite an impressive day thus far, and more tomorrow. There's more to come, yes. There's uh, today's big fly past. Uh, the interesting thing is no historic aircraft, because 
Um, the Flypast was, of course, itself historic aircraft because both the Sea King and the Harrier mm. have been around for 40 mm. years and the aircraft that they're showing within Greenwich for the public to go and look at are also... Um, there's a, a Lynx and a Sea King and a Harrier. They were all there in the Falklands. I mean, these are updated versions. Mm. But we'd no swordfish, no sea fury, but um, they'll come later in the year. OK. Well, also on the line, David Livingstone, <coughs> who won his DSC as the helicopter pilot in... David, it was the Gloucester, wasn't it, during the first Gulf War? Uh, that's right, Christopher. Um, HMS Gloucester it was, and I was flying uh, the, uh, the Lynx uh, in, in, that, uh, in that war. Yeah. Uh, tell me something, not so much about the celebrations today, tell me something about the magic of being in the Naval Air Service, as opposed to being any other part of the Navy, perhaps with the exception of the Submarine Service. Actually, I was, I was thinking about this. Um, just very recently about uh, you know how you can actually say you know the camaraderie within one of the arms of the service, and of course you always think that your own arm, uh, whether the fleet air arm or the submarine service or the hydrographic uh, service, is, is the best. But I think there's a probably a, a more special way of seeing this, which came to me very late one night in that early part of 1991, as I was sitting on sitting in my links. Um, in the in the you know the darkness with the red dimmed red lights of the cockpit, and I realised there, um, sitting on deck alert, that I was sitting right at the top of a sort of kind of pyramid. The, my observer and I couldn't have been better trained as aviators, and we couldn't be better prepared for for, for what we were going through. We had a brilliant maintenance crew. We had a brilliant machine built in Britain uh, by Westlands, of course. Um, we had hugely effective weapons, again, uh, built in Britain, you know, the, the sea skewer uh, missiles. The helicopter controller sitting in the operations room, not technically part of the flight team, was you know, right out of the top drawer. Uh, and the ship itself knew its business, you know, the people on the bridge and the operations room, the engineering rooms and, and in the galleys and the supply stores and so on were, were all absolutely brilliant. So I was sitting there with the electrics all plugged in. And, and in the background, because the radio was working, I could hear the radio calls of an RAF reconnaissance aeroplane, a, a Nimrod, that had found a, detected on its radar, a suspicious surface contact in the darkness many, many miles away. And the helicopter controller, talking on a, a kind of intercom between himself and the helicopter, says that, you know, the Gloucester was getting its authorization to launch from the American fleet commanders who were in charge of the, uh, the fleet in the Gulf. And there was a short pause then of a few minutes, and, and that's the time to sort of kind of compose your thoughts, you know, mentally rehearsing where you can. All you've got to do to go out and find and attack a target in the, in the midst of this utter blackness. And all this is coming to a single point of you, uh, your aeroplane on a ship, at sea in, the, in that darkness. And, and then, of course, the inevitable happened when the, the helicopter controller says, OK, so we're launching you now. Uh, and over the tannoy, you hear the order, uh, you know, action links, action links. And you raise your left hand to the throttles and you hit that number one engine starter button. And Christopher, I propose that that is the real magic behind uh, aviation at sea. David Livingston. Thank you very much indeed. Um, it's quite moving, isn't it? Rupert Nickel, I mean, in, in the Hermes, um, in the period where we probably, the, the significant phrase from the whole thing, I counted them out and counted them back, or mm. whatever. Um, was that the atmosphere that you felt in the Hermes? 
Uh, well, yes. I mean, obviously, I had a link to the the media that others didn't join the conflict. I think it was pilots um, sitting, waiting to go on cap launches, combat air patrols, pilots coming back and debriefing the astonishing things they were doing. Remember, in 82, it was almost unbelievable that there was action. I joined a peacetime navy, mm-hmm. and suddenly, this was a wartime navy. Guys were going up on dawn patrol because we didn't have gannets in Hermes and we didn't then have the, um, the helicopters with, with radar. So they were going up on, on dawn patrol and I was talking to David Morgan about this this morning. And so Who's did, David Morgan? David Morgan was the top uh, scoring ace. Um, oh, in, right. He shot down five in the end. Um, doesn't sound a lot, but, uh, you know, the, uh, 25... Just Argentinian. Hmm? <laughs> yeah, quite. Um, but uh, basically... All kinds of historical things seem to be happening, as well as all kinds of very modern things. I mean, our, our Hermes had been built during the Second World War, uh, and there were ships there I had never imagined to see coming back full of holes, guys, and huge battle flags broken out on ships when you could see straight through the funnel of Plymouth, straight through the hangar of Glamorgan, where, she, where it had been shot away. It was an astonishing sight, and... and it, it looked like, like things out of war movies. I, I couldn't believe what was happening. Eric, as an historian, as a naval historian, um, where would you put the... I come back to this magic of the Naval Air Service. Well, it combines two things. It combines sailing and flying. I mean, it, and, and, and also, because you're operating in such a, a hard environment, there has long been a tradition of, shall we say, can-do-ism mm. in, the, in the fleet air arm. Uh, because, uh, and it's often said that, well, it has been said that... Um, that the fleet air arm pilot will do everything until the rules say he can't do it, whereas an air force pilot will tend to do what the rules say he has to do. Sure. And he saw that over and over again. I mean, I saw fleet air arm pilots briefing attacks on the back of bar chips, which is the air force were not terribly impressed by. Yeah, I see. Right. Um, so I hardly want to move away from this, but I want to go back to this idea of bank holiday. Let's go around the table. Claire, bank holiday, what would it be? Right, I've been thinking about this, a Bacchanalian oh. Harvest Festival. I think back to my childhood in the church choir where we used to stuff ourselves stupid with food on Sunday Harvest Festival. We need Monday to recover, and I think the timing would be ideal. We could move what it around call it? terms. A Bacchanalian Harvest Festival. <laughs> Yes, countryside okay. Alliance should be asked, but BHF. I think they'd like it. Mm. Yes, yes. let's celebrate the countryside of Britain rather than the Christopher citizen. Walker. I'm going to be slightly novel and have a real bank holiday like Roosevelt had in the Great Depression in America. Closed all the banks for four days <laughs> and then only opened the ones that were still well, sold. what they're doing now, isn't it? That's quite, I was say, yeah. No, we're keeping them open now. <laughs> right, right. Eric, <laughs> well, I mean, Trafalgar Day. Yeah, no, Trafal- well, it's in the autumn. Well, it's in the autumn, and I think we have so many spring holidays. We actually need something in the yes. autumn. And you don't, don't mind what the French <laughs> think about not it? Not at all. <laughs> they don't mind. In fact, they were quite pleased to be involved in the Trafalgar, in the Trafalgar commemoration. No, what would you have? Well, I actually think that we made a mistake by selecting St George in the first place, and I would actually go for St <laughs> Alban, the English saint. Mm. But it's um, England again, you see. It's not UK. It's not no, don't don't read your web, because well, there's on, a group of people who've declared 2010 St George's Day a holiday. Yeah, uh-huh. Wait a minute, wait a minute. you say uh, the, the Scots have their holiday, but it's not a bank they have holiday. Their own. We can have ours. They We're talking ours. about uh, having a bank holiday where the, the whole lot closed. That's right. And therefore, and therefore patron saints are a problem because, okay. because different no countries have... No, tell no, me, no, tell me uh, Claire, think about this. Um, I mean, what does it tell us about a nation and nationhood, this whole bank holiday? Or is it just a day, a day off? 
I think it's just a day off and people always complaining mm. they're either too close together as in the ones in, in May and there is nothing between August bank holiday and the last week of, of August and the, the following May as mm. far as I can see exactly. except Christmas. So right. it, it makes winters very long, which is why you need it back in England. That, in 1871 we had our first bank holiday so that the bank staff were had the day. It was their holiday, not ours for them, but their holiday. That's yeah. how it started. Now, as you say, we might have them on holiday permanently. Eric, um... What it says about nation and nationhood, are the English, because we were talking about the English then, yes. are they still a nation like that? I think so, that yes. want it? I think so. I mean, why yeah. don't we do the, we're going to close in a minute, but why don't we do the St Andrews and St David's and St, St. Patrick's? Patrick's have every, yes. Why not? Have, have, every, have every patron saint's day holiday in that particular country. Why no, not? Livingston used to do St Patrick's Day more in London than St George's. That was the complaint. There was more Irish celebration. Hmm. On St. Patrick's that we ever had on uh, St. George's. Thinking of some uh, of the Bacchanalia, um, I just remember the the old so, no two eight. Go on, no, 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 no quick. Uh, what is it? Um, apples be ripe, nuts be brown, so Betty goes up and Britches down. That's and it. That okay, that's it. Thank you, Rupert Nickel. Thank you also, Eric Grove, Christopher Walker, Claire Spencer. Uh, we'll be back same time next week, and also thank you, Mary, in the hut. <laughs>